0: The application process takes about 20 minutes to complete. United Postal Service is looking to fill full and part-time positions, including delivery drivers, CDL drivers, and package handlers. Seasonal positions start at $21 an hour. For more info on how to apply, go to jobs-ups.com. Support this local newscast and this station now by becoming a member at kpft.org. And thanks for tuning in to 90.1 KPFT Houston.
1: In that rice
2: field in the distance Up around the bend
1: Howdy friends, this is Brian Blake and you're listening to KPFT Houston. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on Pacifica Radio, KPFT, 90.1 FM. Uh, Claire Dutre, along with Dr. Bob. How's it going, Claire?
3: It is good. I cannot cannot complain. How are you? I'm doing pretty
1: well. Pretty well. So I went out and I got my uh, uh, COVID booster.
3: Okay. Um, All as well.
1: Well, you know, every time I get the COVID booster, I get, I, I, get a, I get like a fever right the next day. But still day. get the booster. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I say still get the booster, but I get that you know that next day little mm. fever. I mean, I know that I'm nowhere near. So, I mean, I was one of those people that got COVID before there was a vaccination, and mm. it was it was horrible. So I don't want to go anywhere near it. So it's a, a big deal. But listen on growing up in america we're not going to be talking about vaccinations so not another
3: day another time
1: (laughs) but still a lot of children's policy welcome to growing up in america this is a production of children at risk the voice for the children of texas we're dedicated to research public policy law collaborative action on behalf of the youth of texas and so on our show today this is a great cast of characters, I have to say, right? Uh, the it's, best, it's a good I good say. So Linda Cortado is coming for us from El Paso. We're going to be talking about what's going on in the border. But specifically, we're going to be talking about the DACA ruling, uh, yeah, which is a big good. deal. So we'll uh, talk uh, to her about that. Uh, we're also going to be talking to our friend, Delinda Gonzalez-Alcantar, who is the CEO of Boys and Girls Club at McAllen, Texas, down in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, we're it. going to talk about the state of Latino children. Uh, Celeste Barreto-Milligan is going to be with us. She's the founder. And CEO of Tesla's Group, and um, she's part of a group. One Houston, they're doing an HISD candidate forum, so talking about what's going on there. Celeste is a top-notch educator here in Houston, so we love talking to her about education. Uh, Julia Grisard is with us, and she's the executive director of the Bear County Education Coalition uh, out in San Antonio, talking a little bit about. Vouchers and Mm. all the horrors that go along. Actually, she's talking about the misinformation and myths. So, uh, as I said, the horrors of uh, vouchers. So, uh, we'll also have our thumbs up, thumbs down segment. And uh, uh, date of the day today, the number, 20%. 20%. That's, uh, I'm going to say that's a fifth of all of our children. Well, no, that's (laughs) not (laughs) even, not right, but... uh, that is correct. That is that's not a good guess.
3: I'm going to say 20% of Texans <laughs> have seen every Harry Potter movie in order.
1: Whoa.
3: Yeah. Layla's coming in strong with this one. Yeah. I
1: know it is. That's interesting. Well, is she a baby? Big... <laughs> have
3: you seen them in order?
1: I have seen them more. you
3: part of the 20%. Because uh,
1: <laughs> I was the one, as they came out, I would see oh. them, right? So, oh. yeah. I, I mean, was born as a... after. But... <laughs>
3: <laughs> you're too you're <laughs> during christmas Claire can... <laughs> <Dutre>! <laughs> so uh
1: yeah so anyway so pretty good show besides uh, claire's uh, youth and inexperience we'll be able to get through the show today uh so we're real excited about let's go to thumbs up thumbs down right here I don't feel like there's anywhere else on KPFT where we could get an update on Taylor Swift. There isn't. But, you know,
3: and if you <laughs> want my, my own show spin-off, call in and let me know. This would
1: probably not be the right station to do a show <laughs> yeah, spin off on Taylor Swift, but uh there's a lot of hullabaloo around her and this uh this Travis foot, Kelsey. This football. Go player. Chiefs. Yeah, Sorry yeah. to all my
3: Phillies fans. Yeah, yeah. Go so, Birds.
1: Wow, so it's it's like a big deal though, isn't it?
3: It's huge. This is monumental. I'm kidding. Anyone listening is cringing and changing the yeah, station. Yeah, they are. they sorry. I'll keep yeah, you there. Yeah.
1: So this is an activist uh, program. So, but anyway, I know. But,
3: I'll ad- advocate. You know, I do
1: want to say about Taylor Swift the fact that she went out there and got so many people to register, so many young people to register to vote, vote in one it, day. It's fantastic. Speaking right? Speaking of
3: strong women, Beyonce launched her housing project while she was in town in Houston. Amazing strong women in yeah, music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my daughter to- talked about uh, what's keeping the economy alive. She's said you know it's uh, taylor swift beyonce and barbie mm-hmm. you know these are the big blockbusters <laughs> the big three the big blockbusters of the summer right so anyway uh so our th- thumbs up thumbs down is should parents have a say in their child's choice of friends parents everywhere will say yes of course i'm gonna have a choice to, but mm-hmm. what do you think should they have a choice claire did your been- did your mom and dad have a choice in all of your friends
3: so this has been fun doing these uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, because I feel like they're all parent-centric, and so yeah. I have the lens of growing up, because I'm not a parent yet. Yeah. And I was joking with Dahlia, one of our producers before, that I wish I would have listened. Like the joke mm-hmm. of, your mom knows, she knew. So did she have a say? Eh, like they would advise some people not come over.
1: There was um, subtle parental yeah, pressure. Yeah. yeah, Which
3: they weren't, no, you can't be friends with them, but yeah. I, they gave the warning signs and saw through some of them. And then later on, I was hurt because I didn't listen.
1: Is is that the way to go from your perspective, that a parent should do more subtle pressure? Or mm. do you think it's better if a parent says, you know,
3: I, it's hard little Mary would you not be a good friend. As a kid, at every age, you're the yeah. smartest person in the room when you're a kid. But there are so a lot of parents think, like that too, though. Yeah, well, that as well. Yeah. So luckily, I, was, I had some good group. My brothers had some friends that weren't the best influences, but they just trust. And it was... Um, I think the best thing they did was when I hung out with the friends, it was in our controlled environment. So at Mm -hmm. our house. So they would not advise me to go to their house if they were the bad influence or hang out. But I don't know about the final say. I know a mom that does it very strategically because teenagers are only getting smarter and they're going to find ways saying with her friends is she advises, oh, why don't you hang out with this person? So almost offers the alternative good influences. I don't know, did you, you know, have an a say in Jenny's?
1: Well, you know, I'd like to say as a parent and a child expert, you yeah. know, that this is how you do it. <laughs> exactly. But anyone who's raised kids knows, raising kids is like a roll of the dice sometimes. You never know yeah. what you're going to get with your, chi- with your child, right? And so uh, for our daughter, Jenny, I felt like, um, you know, I would like to think that as a parent, what you should do is sort of teach your kids how to make friends and mm-hmm. how to choo- choose their friends. What a good friend looks like. Yeah. And so Ginny was very good at choosing good friends, right? She yeah. would make good selections all the way up through boyfriends, right? I would know pretty quickly because she would, she would share, this is not the guy for me. This yeah. is not a good boyfriend. So she was very good at that. But I know a lot of times parents do all the right things in terms of teaching, and their kids just like oblivious, choosing bad friends, right? So that happens. And so I think it's good. Here's the reality is that kids, if they have a good communications, uh, they have a good rapport with their kids... Um, you know they're going to be able to have influence right right and so you kids want that influence of uh, from the parents and so parents need to say what they like and they don't like yeah with the understanding that the kids may not always listen you know like that boy or that girl may be too cute for me to not be friends with them
3: they're cool uh, high they
1: so cool yeah. right or they're doing all the right things they have a car you know <laughs> yeah that's all, actually the end those deal. things right and so uh, it's going to happen but their life experiences all you, yeah, you can be to is to be trust. there and support them yeah.
3: and i would recommend now being the mediator role model for some families accidentally um having good role models in your children's life because yeah. parents are not going to be cool to children all the time but if they have a role model that's strong and that you support it does teach them of the rights and wrongs of good friends and sometimes they listen to them closer to their age of eh, that doesn't sound like that's something friends do to you yeah. like oh yeah you're right even yeah. if your mom said it 52 times. <laughs> so
1: sorry, mom. What are we saying? We're we're sort of thumbs in the middle, right? Uh, we're well, not. I, I think know. thumbs up. Parents. I know. Should have a say, week. but not the say. They should have a say. I mean, if our question yeah. is, should parents have a say in their child's choice of friends? Absolutely. And kids want to hear what the parents have to say, especially if there's that uh, free line of communication, open yeah. line of communication. Yeah. So there I, you go. Are I you agree? Agreeing? That's it? I know. Thumbs We're not up. gonna
3: disagree anytime soon, but if you go to our Instagram, please please challenge us at children at risk.
1: Have we ever disagreed on, we have disagreed before, haven't we?
3: Yeah, we have to have an intern go back and find every single (laughs) thumbs up, thumbs down and let me know.
1: All right. You're listening to Growing Up in America here on KPFT. Hey, coming up after the break, we're going to go down to El Paso uh, to talk to Linda Corchado, who's the director of the Children's Immigration Network and get the latest on DACA. We'll be right back. All right, Boricua, Boricua, Mark Anthony, right? So, uh, man, I I wish that uh, he's such a good he's such a good performer, right? Mm -hmm. And is he on
3: tour? I don't know, know, but
1: you know, I just felt like he became popular after he uh, married J Lo, right? And probably he's lost all popularity. I mean, that
3: song I asked to play it came on at my workout the other day, and I've never run faster.
1: Oh, really? Such
3: a blood pumping song.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he's Puerto Rican, right, Boricua?
3: Oh, so you knew him. Was he in your group of friends your parents had a say in? <laughs> he,
1: was, he was very richer than my than my group of friends, so he was in uh, Linda Cortado's so, group of friends. I bet you my mom would have said no. No <laughs> yeah, No, <laughs> no Mark Anthony, he's no yeah. good. So anyway. Uh there was my mom's accent. Did you get it? So, pretty good. <laughs> spot on if I've ever heard. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh Linda is on the line with us. Linda, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. I, you should know Puerto Rican mom everywhere just fainted when you said he became famous after he d- dated <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh,
3: Stop listening.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was very famous beforehand, <laughs> we right? Re- yes.
3: I
0: need to get these callers back.
1: yeah (laughs) uh linda cortado is the director of our children's immigration network she's in el paso linda give us the latest on uh uh, daca the deferred action uh program uh, because this is you know i see it as two things right it's a blow in the fight for uh fair immigration but it's sort of was sort of expected in some ways right yeah it was a surprise to no
0: one um that this Fifth, Fifth Circuit uh, Court would make this type of decision. Um, the judge overseeing that decision has already struck down top DAPA at DACA, um, and so this is really no surprise. It's also a very conservative yeah. um, court that has really been in line with, with Texas on a lot of these challenges. So, you know, the good thing is that the immigration advocates have were ready to, to act and, and to support DACA recipients. Um the other good thing is that they, while they are in limbo, they also have not lost their status. Right. Um, so you know those are that that's promising, and really it's all eyes on on Congress because um, this will likely go to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court has made a lot of wonky decisions, but um, yeah. we really don't know where where they lie on, on some of these things.
1: And, and when we um, so talk about that, Congress will. And when we talk about DACA, we're talking about children. Now, a lot of young adults, um, that, um, that were basically these are kids that were born elsewhere, but raised in the United States that came over when they're two, three, four, five years old. So, they're, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're American, they're part of our culture. Uh, the great majority of them, or many, many of them, don't even speak another language. They speak English. That's their first language. And so we're talking about when we when we say no to DACA, we're, we're basically saying, yeah, these kids don't belong in the United States when indeed, by all rights, they really should be part of the part of the, the American system, right?
0: Right. I mean, they, they already are. They're part of our economies. They're part of our school systems, our workforce. Um, it, it's so important what, what DACA I think this is great because, you know, with a lot of undocumented migrants working in the U.S., it's hard to capture their economic impact. Mm-hmm. But with DACA, now suddenly those who were undocumented had work permits and we could document. And, wow, the numbers were impressive, right? Like doctors, nurses who really saved our lives during the pandemic, first-time homeowners, um, very they have very advanced degrees. So yeah, you know, we're talking about a segment who came in early, uh, in, I believe it was 2014 when this passed under the, the Obama administration for kids and now are young adults. Many of them are parents themselves. So I think that's something that's also interesting to understand is, um, what we're doing to their kids. This, yeah. this is a very traumatic experience that their children are now facing. You know, imagine being raised in, in a home that felt stable, where where kids didn't have to think, oh, God, when I come back, maybe mom will be in detention, maybe mom will be caught by somebody. And now, all of a sudden, they have to reshift how they see safety and security in their family, and, and that's really disappointing.
3: Yeah. And thinking of, I mean, this isn't surprising ruling with a conservative court, but the impact and the buzz around it. Do you see, I know you're saying organizations have stepped up and the status is still, um, it's wobbly, but it's there. Do you see this having an impact nationwide on similar ideology and rulings popping up or do you see this being a one and done situation?
0: Well, the thing is, DACA was very unique, um, so I don't. There's nothing like it um, under any administration since then. Um, so, no, I don't. I don't see that happening. Um, importantly, progress is ending, right? Like we, so many of us have said. Well, what about DAPA? Which I fumbled my words on earlier, and DAPA was what we thought. Well. What about the parents who brought them? Mm, right. But yeah. It's just—it's all about keeping families together, and I think that's something that we really focus on on the Children's Immigration Network. It's—it's it's looking at the family holistically, looking at the child holistically. So now the child doesn't fear deportation, but now their parents might, right? And so now when you look at DACA, those parents are now elderly parents, and and how heartbreaking to think that they could also face deportation proceedings. So it, it it does have a chilling effect on doing something similar like this to keep the family uh, intact and together.
1: Linda, as a as a final question, you know, uh, we would like to think that something like ruling like this, and and frankly, the the judge even kept the door open, right, on DACA. He didn't close it down. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Is is there a sense that even conservative judges think in the end, these kids probably belong here, but uh, I'm not going to make it easy on them? Uh, is that what's happening?
0: I think so. And I think it's this conflict of this conservative ideology that um, doesn't want to see this overreach in the executive branch, right? Like many critics say this is an Obama overreach. He should have never just sort of drafted this law. Um, uh, and, and I mean, there has to just be a point though, when ideology conflicts with real human lives and families and our economy. And I think conservative judges get that, um, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. note. Well, will our, our elected officials get that? Will they finally act and prevent, you know, real strife that could happen if, if the Supreme Court strikes down DACA?
1: Linda, before we go, I I noticed on the news, Oscar Oscar Leaser, the mayor of uh, El Paso, who you and I both know him. And uh, El Paso in the past has sort of been one of these places that's been sort of a welcome respite for a lot of people passing through. But he even was saying, sort of joining the New York City mayor saying, hey, this is a crisis for us. What's going on there in El Paso that's different than it was?
0: Right. I mean, it's, it's, Continuous flows of migrations yeah. that that are happening, um, and a lot of a lot of the, our service providers are stressed. Uh, you're also saying that in San Antonio, interestingly, yeah. a lot yeah. of folks are crossing through Eagle Pass. Um, so it's it's the same narrative, but we're actually seeing a change in the Biden administration where they're trying to accelerate efforts to get newly arrived persons work permits. So. You know, I I hope to see that progress as well. But, you know, El Paso is still rising to the
1: challenge. There you go. Linda Cortado is the director of the Children's Immigration Network in El Paso. Uh, Thank you, Linda, very much for all that you and your team do, and uh, hope to talk to you again real soon. Thanks, y'all. All All right. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America. Hey, coming up after the break, Delinda Gonzalez Alcantar. She's the CEO of Boys and Girls Club down in the Rio Grande Valley in McAllen. We'll be right back um, in just a second. You know this is what happens when you have in the control booth you have a dj right I mean, <laughs> it's been
3: remarkable you, you
1: get better versions of songs than you ever knew existed right so i'm telling uh, you he's coming
3: to the christmas party
1: and uh, speaking of smooth operators we're going straight <laughs> to dalinda gonzalez alcantar and dalinda's down in the rio grande valley uh to talk we're going to talk to dalinda a little bit about the state of uh, latin latina children dalinda how you doing
4: Good. I'm doing super well. Uh, fall has not hit here in the Rio Grande Valley ever. <laughs> so we're still really, it's still really warm over here in our border region. <laughs>
1: it, but you know what, Delinda, I guess there are a few nice days, but it's all, I mean, nice is not the right word. There are a few, a few temperate days, but it's mostly hot all the time, right?
4: It mostly is. Yes. But we are very blessed because um, we appreciate the consistency. How's that?
1: Yeah, that's good. good.
3: (laughs) Can never be let down. Linda, we're excited to talk to you today about the Boys and Girls Club in McAllen, especially as it pertains to serving Latin A children. Can you give a scope on some of the strategies and programs at the Boys and Girls Club um, in supporting students around the area?
4: Yes, absolutely. So I kind of want to give an overarching response to that because I learned this really great and valuable lesson. um, When I was speaking to a board president over um, at a nonprofit in Austin, and he was telling me, you know, we're really, really struggling with um, getting getting kids in, in the Latino community in East Austin. And so I said, well, tell me a little bit about your leadership. Tell me a little bit about mm-hmm. who you're sending out onto Riverside. Tell me, you know, and so what I have seen is not only in Austin, but a reoccurring theme is as well-meaning as we are for Mm. outreach and for programs and to engage community, if you're not sending out someone who speaks Spanish or who speaks the language within those communities, it's really for nothing. And Mm. I don't say that lightly. It's not one to just say we have these sort of shared experience, but the reality is for children, they do not get to make those decisions on their own and you need to have people on your staff you need to have people on your team yes that have culturally relevant experiences but primarily the first thing needs to you need to ask yourself do we have someone on our team to uh speak spanish and i would i would say that that is something that we oftentimes overlook that it needs to it's it's something that's primary when it comes um you know to outreach in latino communities so I would say that's that's really, really key. Um, And and I think the other thing, too, is, yes, to have people there that are culturally relevant, that understand the community, but that's not just for Latino children. That would be for everyone, that we have these shared and lived experiences when we um, serve children. So those would be, you know, my two big um, objectives, right, that everyone can sort of take from today is, like, look at your talent, look at the human capital within... Um, your programs, your nonprofits, even in public ed, are you making sure that those people are rising to the top um, so that they can create that awareness over what we're doing?
1: We're talking with Delinda Gonzalez Alcantar. She's the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club in McAllen, down in the Rio Grande Valley, and is going to be the the uh, MC for our upcoming State of Latine Children, uh, which is a national event. And I wonder, Delinda, uh, in Texas, uh, the majority of our children, you and I know, are Latino. And we see this, you know, the the young families in Texas, you know, we're one of the youngest states in the union, and that's because the young families, again, are Latino. Uh, but I wonder sometimes, you know, maybe you see it in the valley, you know, but I, I wonder if the rest of Texas realizes that we're, we, our children are majority Latino, because sometimes we're not acting like that, are we?
4: <laughs> it's not sometimes it's a it's, uh, very often <laughs> you know it really is interesting because that is the one thing that we know that the census taught us is that here in the state of texas especially we are officially majority latino and the reality is is that yes we're a young state but then in terms of latino families we're even younger yeah. and we're growing rapidly and so when we talk about let's just talk about the economic impact of that if we don't move very quickly and pivot to saying we know these are the populations we're serving and this is what they need, then as at the state level, we're going to see some significant disaster when it comes to economic development, workforce development, because we, we have to understand that in the Latino community, very similar to the black community, that we, um, we started late, not all mm. of us. But let me tell you, I have counterparts that are three generations into, you know, college education. My husband is first generation here in the United States. That's a similar story for many of the Latino children and even adults that we are serving. And so we have to say to ourselves, what does our growing population need for not only for me, primarily of importance is what the family needs to succeed, what the individual needs to succeed. But the reality is, from an economic standpoint, The state needs to realize they need to move much, much faster when it comes to serving these communities for the economic impact uh, of the state. So I think that's really important for us to consider. Yeah. yeah, something you
3: mentioned and keep honing in on that's super important is when you're outreaching the community, doing it with intentionality um, and with someone that speaks that language. For your organization or even just local organization, ISDs around you, how have you seen strategic partnerships in really outreaching and weaving in the Latin A community?
4: Yeah, so for here, right in the border region, we don't know anything else. And so what I what I can tell you is that we have always um, been a a community of partners. So I'm actually sitting in the president's office at South Texas College. I get the honor of serving as a trustee here. But in the conference room right next to me um, is our local school district trustees and some of their executive team meeting with us and meeting also with the nonprofit to say, what does this look like to get a child, mostly Latino children down here, and through um, be, being able to be productive and independent citizens. So from the school district standpoint, when they're in school, right, starting at pre-K, but then out of school time, where, by the way, 80% of our kids spend their time out of school, um, that's where Boys and Girls Club comes in. That's where feeding programs come in, mentorship, the education, support, and the support of family comes in. And then, you know, the community college was created, really for the same purpose the same reason for public ed the same reason for boys and girls club the mission is the same so in real time as i sit here in this president's office the wall right in front of me has these growing partnerships that we say we've got to do something together to get them to and through um adulthood to be productive and happy citizens right one thing that i would say is like hey well where do we start a lot of areas that are continuing to see an influx of latino children Again, I would say, you know, let's make sure that what we're sending home is translated into yeah. English and Spanish. That's something that we do here because we've served um, Latino families since the inception of this region, right? But let's be like really intentional because then, you know how difficult it is for an adult, and a mom to have to look to her child and say, tell me what this says. And if you haven't seen A Million Miles Away yet, everyone needs to see it, like, immediately. But especially if you serve Latino children, if you're not really sure what that should look like or what that shouldn't look like, you need to watch that movie. But I will tell you, just basic things like taking the time to translate, taking the time, again, to learn the language, realizing that a lot of government institutions, a lot of the families that come in from Mexico, including my in-laws, You know, in Mexico, and I'm not talking about all Latino uh, countries or Hispanic descent, but here in Mexico, I've learned that a lot of the parents have always been told the teacher is the expert. You do not question them. Mm -hmm. So when you come to the United States, you have to be very intentional to connect them and say, it's okay to have partnership with us. You don't have to just leave them at the door. So some of these things that you have to learn about these different countries of origin, I think are really, really valuable.
1: Delinda gonzalez Alcantar is the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of McAllen. Delinda, thanks so much for joining us, and I look forward to uh, the state of Latiné children. When when is that happening, Claire? Do you know? Do you know, Delinda? It's coming up soon, right? It is. I will
4: get the date before. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, it is. You know what? I can't remember the date right off the bat. It's in October.
1: We are all on top of it. Of show. Yes, I know. So, Dalinda, thank you. So, we all should know the answer to this. And none and of we us We will know, by the end of, of the show. Yeah. October 12th. October 12th. Look at that. Okay. There you
4: go. October 12th. So, just as we end Hispanic Heritage Month, so um what a yeah. timely conversation to have absolutely yeah and,
1: and the thing that i always remind people is that you know if we want major change you know the two groups in texas that aren't voting young people and latinos we just yeah. need all yep. of us need to work to make sure that those two things change uh that will make a lot of uh, difference delinda thanks so much we'll talk to you soon
4: thank you thank you for having me Bye. right
1: <laughs> you're listening to growing up in america on kpft after the break data of the day with leila mazali All right, time for date of the day. Layla Mazzali is with us. She's the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Layla, how's the weather in California today?
2: (laughs) We're going to do this every week. I was about to say. Uh, It
1: changes every week, right? So I just feel people want to know.
3: (laughs) She was just in Baja,
1: California. I was. Was that good? It
5: was.
2: Um, yeah, it was. We, I mean, where we went was a little remote and it had been a little bit weather battered. So our friends who we were with, uh, got their camper van stuck like really, really badly multiple times. Wow. So it was a little bit of a misadventure, but it was gorgeous. There's an oasis down there with hot springs.
1: It was lovely. You know, you had me at Hot Springs. Wow. Stop retreating, Baja. (laughs) That's what I'm hearing. There we go. So the number today is 20%, Claire. Claire's, my guess is that was one fifth of all children. And Claire, what was your answer on
3: this? I said that 20% of Texans have seen all Harry Potter movies in order.
1: Oh, sequentially. Yeah. Very good. (laughs) So
3: go ahead and tell me I'm right, Layla. (laughs) I
2: I would guess that that number is greater. Although I don't know. I know that there is definitely an anti harry potter blowback so
3: maybe maybe
1: not oh there is um
3: so my number could yeah. be correct
1: i did not know through the there's surveys an anti- i'll run the numbers oh is this like oh. the anti-halloween crowd uh, yeah oh okay. harry potter was banned yeah. in high school oh wow it's
3: a, it's, it's a religious fear of sorcery
5: type crowd <laughs> with,
1: sorry, a know, yeah, yeah. with a great <laughs> cast with a great cast all right so what is 20 percent layla
2: Um, So 20%, it's the percentage of Latino or Latina adults who carry a bachelor's degree or higher, and that's compared to 35% of the general population.
1: So Latino children much less likely to go for higher education than sort of their Anglo counterparts. Uh, What what does that mean for Latino families in terms of getting ahead? Well,
2: we do know that even still, um, you know, with there being more options for people outside of college that um, earning potential is still largely dictated by educational attainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to me, it really just points to the large number of barriers that face Latina children and children of color, low-income children in accessing higher education, because I don't think it's for a lack of, um, you know, desire ambition. A uh, college degree in the U.S. is a major challenge financially above all else.
1: And do you know, Layla, this is a question you may not know the answer to because I'm, we've not asked you to pull any data on this, but is it different state by state and Latino culture by Latino culture, or is it pretty much the same across the board?
2: Um, I don't have that data, yeah. but again, yeah, I don't really think it's a, a cultural issue so much as it is a material one, a financial yeah. issue.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wonder, right, I mean, when you look at, say, uh, Miami Cubans, right, that's mm-hmm. a, sort of, that, that's a wealthier population. So that w- if you're talking about material issue, that would be a material issue. Uh, but I wonder, like, you know, I notice I've seen data between, say, California and Texas where we're talking about similar populations culturally, uh, but California does a better job of sort of keeping uh, low-income kids in college than Texas does. Uh, and I wonder if that's true for Latino children as well. I would imagine it is.
2: Um, I would say, yeah, very possibly. I mean, there's a number of municipalities in California that um, get free community college. Um, so there's a few other programs available in California, although it is still, you know, again, a major burden. And then even if you you do go to college, then the the aftermath of paying for college with your student loan debt is, a whole separate burden. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But I think, but this whole idea of going to college, uh, I mean, it's still a part of the deal, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many public, uh, officials i talk to about this and they say well wow, there's a lot of good welding jobs out there and and what i hear with that is that yeah there's some welding jobs but you're basically saying for black and brown kids you want them to take the welding jobs when indeed in texas we're so under college right
3: well even thinking of the k-12 space i immediately jump to where the supports for emergent bilinguals and immigrant populations and when that's not fully renowned and robust in our pre-college pathways how are we to expect them to be prepared yeah. And they get to them.
2: I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, especially when we see that there is an even lower likelihood for Latino or Latina residents in the U.S. who are born abroad to have a bachelor's mm. degree. Mm. I think that really speaks to those barriers in the pathways to college that start much earlier.
1: And we were talking about DACA with, with uh, Linda Cortado before and the number of kids that are dreamers, right, DACA, yeah. that have we're gone to now. college and then just They just can't find jobs, right, because just other barriers there. So anyway, Uh, Leila Mazzali is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Thank you, as always, Leila, for that date of the day and the weather of the day from California. (laughs) So Thanks, Leila. Thanks, Leila. Have a good one, guys. All righty. Coming up after the break, Celeste Barreto Milligan, uh, who's with Te- Tesla's group, and we'll be talking about uh, the group, uh, the work that One Houston is doing in regards to a uh, big up and coming HISD, Houston Independent School District School Board Candidate Forum. We'll be right back. Keep it coming! Uh, claire and i are doing a little dancing here in the studio this Perfect is music, fantastic today. yeah celeste uh milligan <laughs> is with us celeste how are you doing today
5: i'm doing great it's so great to talk to you bob claire love yeah. to uh have a chance to say hello yeah,
1: yeah exactly so you're doing you're putting on celeste this forum right this uh, one houston yeah. forum and what are the chances? I mean, are we going to have elections like normal? I mean, that's this is the big question for me, right? Is that do we yeah. think this will make a difference, or does the law dictate that once TEA, the Texas Education Agency, takes away their appointed board, that the the elected board sort of resumes what they were doing?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So, one Houston, uh, we're a group of students, parents, educators, community members who are volunteering to organize around a number of things is putting on the Houston ISD Trustee Candidate Forum because we do have to proceed as a district with an actual election. Um, to your question, are will our elected trustees or at what point really will they have yeah. governance power again? That that formal governance power won't resume until we meet the exit criteria for the TEA um intervention. And I, I can pull them up. I more or less know them, but I don't want to misspeak. Yeah. Um, and once we meet those criteria, and at least one of them is that we have no multi-year uh, DRF schools, which will be wow. a challenge. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, it, uh the, the elected board will resume responsibilities, essentially one to three trustees at a time, as I think the, the plan oh, okay. Um so the elected board won't be reinstated simultaneously, um, but uh, but yeah. So that's kind of what's
1: on deck. So, so when answer, when, when yeah no, when, go ahead. when you and I go to vote in November, though, so we will be yeah. voting on trustees. Whether those trustees have any power or not is another question. But you and I will vote that's on right. those trustees
5: in in uh, four districts. Yeah. Yeah. So there are nine trustee seats Four of those seats are up for election uh, and will be on the ballot November 7th. So a lot of folks have have said to me, what? What do you mean we're having an election? And that's part of why I'm trying to do this. Right. Because District 2, District uh, 4, 3 and 8 are all up for election. And two of those seats are actually contested in this election and getting voters access to these candidates whether they have formal governance power or not, I think is really dire and critically important. Yeah.
3: yeah. And the kind of formation of these forums and then the pulse of HISD, where have been some of the issues that parents and students have brought up that seem most pressing to our board or should be most pressing to our board?
5: Oh, dear. State takeover is number one, right? Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, certainly the state intervention. Um, And I think, Right now there's so much energy around um, advocacy related to what is happening under the intervention through uh, from the board of managers and our appointed superintendent um, there is a recently um, uh, the the district advisory committee has recently had new members um, appointed to it I'm one of those members mm-hmm. and I'll be one of the I'm one of the elected, the two elected co-chairs of that committee. And so I can tell you some of the major issues right now are um, the district of innovation. And are we, will we proceed to apply for that? And what conditions will we consider? But I think, you know, how we are, uh, how we're treating our teachers, um, how our, whether or not our kids are learning, whether or not we're able to provide special education services, uh, whether or not the community is involved in decision-making about our kids. Those are all topics that are coming up all over um, in and out of formal uh, advocacy forums. And, you know, I think of uh, in terms of all of our candidates, and I've spoken with each of them a bit about what's important to them, good governance across the board is, is something that each of these candidates care about. And I think that we all should care about as a community These trustees who are elected they won't have power to govern right now but they will sit in an advisory role to the board of managers Mm -hmm. and they'll be incumbents when the time comes to hand the district back over right so that there's power
1: in that platform to me that is the big deal right i mean there'll be a lot of people that will say The state, you know, the, the they'll feel disenfranchised, right? The state has taken us yeah. over. Why should I vote for this right. person? But there will be a day in the not too distant future and sooner than we think where these trustees will make a decision on who our next superintendent is and it's it's really the biggest decision especially coming after the current uh what's currently happening with hisd it's it's going to be maybe the biggest decision certainly in decades for hisd it and it'll be momentous and so it's very important that we have the right people there
5: yeah that's right. So let's say even that, let's say we meet the exit criteria three years from now, mm-hmm. all of the people who are elected to these seats in November will be elected to those seats for four years. And so if we start handing our district back over to our elected trustees, assuming that happens in as short of a timeline as possible, and we're looking at a two or three year timeline, the four people who are elected to these four districts will all be within their their terms to yeah. hand back over our district. So we are making decisions uh, about, you know, some people who may or may not have an actual governance role, but regardless, we'll have influence on yeah. what's happening now and what happens next.
1: I will, I was, uh, I interviewed Mike Miles at the big education summit last week. Was that last yeah. week? Uh, it was, yeah, it feels like months yeah. ago. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, it was interesting, right? I felt like I give him a, I give him a little bit of a hard time. But then I left the meeting, and the whole staff—you weren't mean to him. You needed to be mean to him. <laughs> and I feel like you can never be mean enough to the state takeover <laughs> superintendent, right? It's just, sure. uh, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, people, and rightfully so, right? People do feel disenfranchised. People do feel like, what Absolutely. the heck, you know? And I just hope that you know, sometimes this crisis can maybe mean that people will pay more attention uh, yeah. to going on in public education you can, i mean if we try to make lemonade mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about here
3: so. well it's exciting too because yeah. people are learning about governance of education and he has yeah. up and down and so balance of powers and that's why it's so important to invest in our trustees and board because they can ultimately yeah. balance out that power
1: yeah celeste we need to have yeah. your back because yeah. i feel like there's a whole range <laughs> of wait. education issues yeah. that we could talk about celeste barretto milligan is you. with, uh, and tell me that Teslas, is that right? Yeah, you said it right. right? Yeah, the Teslas group. group. Yeah. I you were saying it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Celeste, for being with us, and we we'll look forward to talking to you again real soon.
5: Yeah, thank
1: you. righty. coming up after the break, Julie Grisard, who's with the Bear County Education Coalition. We're talking vouchers right up after the break. See you in a second.
5: We're
3: we talking about,
1: Want to talk about a little bit about vouchers? Oh,
3: I'll always talk about vouchers. Until so, uh,
1: uh, hopefully, we'll get uh, Julia on the line. There's been some sort of little deal, but but Claire and I are always happy <laughs> to, to be super anti-voucher, right? I mean, so here's the deal: is the governor is about to call a special session. Uh, and and the reason that he's calling this special session of our state legislature, right? Our legislature only meets once every two years for about six months. And during their term, which was January through June, they never got anything passed on vouchers. And that's because uh, not only did all Democrats, but a significant portion of Republicans right. said, no, we don't like vouchers. Uh, that included the Speaker of the House. That included pretty much all the rural Republicans right. said, no, we don't want vouchers. And rural Republicans tend to be anti-voucher because the largest employers in their districts – Many times are the ISDs, the, schools, the public school system. So here we have a governor basically now saying, I'm calling these le- this legislature into session until they pass vouchers. Right. What's the deal with that, Claire? I, when
3: I find it, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, at this point, there is there is none. You can counteract a million and one points because we're not fully funding our public education system. So to not have these supports that we're pointing to as failures fully funded to show success then it's, it's wrong to then take that money additionally and put it into private systems that have no accountability, that have no um, right or need to fill IDEA, Disability Rights Act, because they're not under that because they're private structures. And even rural schools, they don't have the private schools, so you're taking money from areas that don't even have the opportunity to go to these private sectors, and you're putting it into urban schools or urban area schools. So there's, there's a huge... Pinwheel. I do think it's going to be a lot of pressure pushing into the primaries for, Republicans to switch over.
1: Wow. So I think as we as we talk about this, you know, you you have this pressure from a governor who really wants to put on his report card that he got vouchers passed in Texas because he has national ambitions. Right. And um, when we look at the details of this voucher program, uh, one of the you know one of the things it's good for. Is that if you have children in private schools, you get a little, you get a subsidy now, right? Right. So if your child is going to St. John's or Kincaid or Episcopal, you now get a break on the price.
3: Yeah, and even in the counteracts, I know some drafts say you have to be entering when it goes into effect, not currently in. I don't know if there's still a way to work the system of unenrolling. Yeah. Um, and then the argument of some of the service schools they point to that can serve higher need students are up to upwards of twenty fifteen thousand a year, and the voucher proposed is around eight. Um, I have not seen robust scholarship systems as mentioned that counteract that cost, and then it's the cost of transportation. I. No school lunches when they're not free and reduced lunches it costs a pretty penny alone for parents to scrape up, and so is eight thousand in actual it doesn't offset costs for low income families as we
1: I think one of the key things that we'll see here is that uh, if this passes and I'm sort of, of the mind that a it, there's going to be a large coalition of people fighting this, right? Right. And uh, but if it passes, what it means is that there's there's really no room, maybe a little bit of room at some of the Catholic schools in some <laughs> urban areas, but really there's not much room for to for parental choice, which the governor is trying to sell. And uh, what it means is that there are going to be a lot of private schools springing up all over the place with people who want to claim this this money right that they will. oh i could do a school and yeah and so i think uh you know i think we'll have all these schools without accountability uh, popping popping up up all over the place Uh, on the line with us julia grisard is joining she's the executive director of the bear county education coalition out in san Antonio. julia how you doing
6: Hello, sir. I am good. How are you all? Thank you so much for having me on today.
1: Very good. So so Claire and I were just talking about the ups and downs of vouchers. And here you are. You're part of this coalition of all of these San Antonio schools. Uh, That's right. What are you guys coming up with? I mean, what are the big reasons you're giving? Because the governor is sort of making this compelling case of parental choice. And this is a freedom of movement. Uh, But but when you talk to superintendents in San Antonio, what are they saying in response, Julia?
6: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so one thing that, that we want to make sure that folks understand and the superintendents are regularly talking to their communities about is the, the name in itself, school choice, is a misnomer. It yeah. It really should be referred to as the school's choice. Right. Private schools will still have the ability to pick and choose who is a part of their student body. So even if a family wants to engage in an education savings account or a voucher, it is still up to the school and not the family, right, to exercise their admission qualification and also rejection and potential kicking out of the student. Um, And so I think that differential is really important. We continue to talk about parental empowerment and school choice, but really in the system that is currently being discussed, if you read through the policy that's been offered so far, it allows for the schools to do the choosing of their student body rather than the parents or the families to make that decision what's best for their children.
1: I'm very worried about the accountability part of this, uh, Julia. I yeah, mean, absolutely. I mean, and all parts. And I, and I was on a a, a program, and uh, Paul Betancourt was part of it, and uh, yeah. they he was specifically asked this idea about accountability and he said no of course there's no accountability they're private schools and (laughs) and here here you and i we spend our lives sort of making sure that schools are accountable to our kids and our parents but now the but here again school the private schools choice because they don't need to be accountable to anyone
6: That's right. It is a really worrisome fact. So a couple of things that are, are going on in these conversations currently, and the retort is, or the response rather is, well, we trust parents. And absolutely, we should trust parents, we should trust community members to make that decision. But in order for parents To make that decision, in order for the community to do that evaluation, they have to have some system that shares how that school is doing. And even if that parent, say they've already engaged with that private school, they already have their child enrolled. the, The ability for them to evaluate their performance comes down to the individual student's reaction, right? Or what's happened through an entire school year, not how that school has performed or is currently performing for the other students that they serve. And so the only restitution that a parent has is to remove that child. Um, What's interesting about that, or what's really more I think terrifying, is probably more accurate, is that when you do that, anytime you're moving a student around without incredible support, both from the receiving school, uh, the parent, and the sending school, which often does not happen in these cases, that student is just statistically um, at more risk for dropping out or being behind in the school that they go to next, right? And so if we have a school that's not working out for a family or they get pushed out, goodness forbid, um, we automatically are putting that child and that family at risk. The other response that from the private school um, side, and this is this is no, um, not to disparage an individual family's choice to sure. choose a private school. There are lots of private schools that are doing great work. But the other response from the folks advocating for this policy is, well, they'll be accredited. And I don't know if we want to venture a guess about how many <laughs> accreditations that are out there right in the state it is a, a, over 20. Yeah. And so if I am a parent, I, you know, I, I am a parent. If I as a parent, um, if I was to go on and try to shop, right, for a school that best fit my son's needs, I would have to go to 20 different accreditation websites. Hope that they had the requirements for their accreditation on their website, which many of them do not. Understand which accreditation a particular private school had, and then try to go back date on the last time that they submitted their accreditation application. And none of that has how their current students are performing, graduation rates, academic performance, what are their scores on nationally norm reference tests. And these are all things that we have available in the public school system today.
1: Yeah, amazing stuff. Uh, did you have a final question for Julia before we go to this, a couple of fun questions? I
3: know, I know. I guess Julia to highlight too for the parent choice that there is interdistrict options and yeah, that more funding should be funneled into those than in these public se- private sectors.
2: Yeah,
6: there. We. It's funny. Um, we were working with a um, a, a, a a teacher recently. And we were talking about how there was going to be a, a special session on school choice. And she said, well, great, we can all go home because we already have it. Um, and, and it's, she's not wrong. We have, and so for our, the districts that we serve the majority of our um, in, in the Bear County education coalition, majority of our districts are what we refer to as interdistrict choice schools. And so if there is a district that a family wants to attend That is not where they're located. There are procedures and applications currently to allow that to happen. Now, you know, I do think that there is potentially a conversation about how we allow that to maybe expand as a state. But to your point, that's within a public system where we're able to do apples-to-apples comparison of schools, where we understand the background of the teachers and their credentials and their certifications, um, we know how they're spending dollars, um, and also it really is a system where the the money does follow the child. Um, we pay based on attendance and enrollment, um, really attendance. That's another policy issue, yeah. um, but it's we that money follows the child and where they're going to school. Um, the other yep. response on education savings accounts, well, that's my money. I should be able to use it. Mm-hmm. On average, the amount of money going into an education savings account is well and above what individuals pay um, into the public system. That's because we have families and people and individuals that don't have school age children that are also contributing to our public education system because it is a community interest.
1: Yeah. Um, do, and do,
6: for those community,
1: Yeah, go ahead. Do, yeah, we're, we're running out of time. And so we always like course, to end yeah. with uh, a very quick little uh, couple of questions. And so in these 20 yeah. seconds that we have, what was your favorite subject when you were a kid in school, Julie?
6: Oh, I love um, music. music. I loved I loved music and I loved history. Those were, I'm sorry, I cheated on the question. I gave you two, but I was um, such a music nerd in school. Yeah, music history, absolutely. (laughs) Um, That was my absolute favorite. And
1: and very quickly, what's your last question, Julie? I I was going to say book, but what was your favorite song as a kid? Favorite song as a kid?
6: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Claire de ah, um, Loon is a just a be- yeah, it's a beautiful song. It's really well done on the um, on the harp, um, which is my instrument in school. Wow. Um, and I actually, wa- it was one of my favorite songs of all time. So Ju- thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, Julie oh, Grisard, so Executive
1: you. Director of the Bear County Education Coalition. For Claire and I, we're out of here. We do this every week for, for children. children. See you next time.
0: I'm Al Haley, and you're listening to KPFT Houston 90.1. Hey Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute.
1: Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable.